the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Monday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. James Blend is producing Dave King Engineering. Today, I'm looking forward to a conversation with Paul Willie. He is the director of the Portland Singing Christmas Tree Choir. A night of worship is coming up this Saturday, May the 6th, 2 o'clock and 6 o'clock p.m. You'll have an opportunity to join with the Singing Christmas Tree Choir as we raise our voices and hymns and uh, worship songs and have a great time doing it all together. It's an audience participation event. We'll tell you more about that when he joins us later in the 5 o'clock hour. But if you can't wait, you can go to singingchristmastree.org for more details, or you can call them at 503-557-8733. Again, that's coming up this Saturday, May 6th, 2 o'clock p.m. and 6 o'clock p.m. And if you are so inclined, there's an opportunity to share dinner in between the two performances at 4 o'clock, a pulled pork dinner option. $10. The concert is free. Um, We're asking you to register, but you can get all the important details at singingchristmastree.org or by calling. That's coming up later in the program, so you can get more of those details. Also, we're going to highlight Frank Carpenter. He's been a a worker in the vineyard for many years. He was honored by uh, his church and family and friends uh, this weekend. We'll tell you more about that. And the challenge that his life at least presented to me and I think others as well to be faithful and to finish well. He's still in the thick of it, but he's um, demonstrated a life of commitment. We'll talk more about that later in the program. Well, the Oregon House of Representatives plans to vote this week on abortion and firearms bills that are likely to split the political parties as if they weren't already split. Unlike the multi-million dollar plans for homelessness and housing and semiconductor manufacturing that largely united the parties during the first half of the 2023 session. Well, the Oregon House set votes this week on abortion and firearms legislation that will divide uh, them in ways that one can uh, doesn't have to strain to imagine. House Bill 2002, we talked about it last week. It was scheduled for a hearing this morning, or rather a vote this morning. It builds on Oregon's 2017 law ensuring access to abortion and other reproductive and gender-affirming health care. And there's also House Bill 2005. Again, we're talking about the Oregon legislature. It's scheduled for Tuesday. It outlaws so-called ghost guns made with untraceable parts. Well, both bills upon passage would go to the Senate, which then can take only up to uh, up or down votes. Um, that would not be sent to uh, another committee. So this would be sort of fast-tracked. And I think especially with House Bill 2002, there is reason for significant concern. If the vote on House Bill 2002 follows what happened with the Reproductive Health Equity Act of 2017, all Democrats will vote for it except John Lively of Springfield and all Republicans will vote against it. If the vote on House Bill 2005 follows what happened with firearms legislation two years ago, most Democrats will vote for it. The bill is uh, requested by Attorney General Ellen Rosenblum and Republicans will vote against it. House Speaker Dan Rayfield 
out of Corvallis, agreed to schedule these bills as special orders of business. It was Rayfield who convened a work group last year just before the U.S. Supreme Court officially overturned abortion as a federal constitutional right in Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization and returned the issue to the states. The outcome of the vote isn't going to be a surprise for most. A majority of Democrats supports these bills, Rayfield told reporters um, last month. But we have to respect the dialogue. We have to have the debate. It's important that the minority part have its voice heard. In other words, it's a foregone conclusion, but we will give them an opportunity to speak. Among some of the key provisions in House Bill 2002, we, again, we talked about it last week, but I think it bears repeating. It says every individual has a fundamental right to make decisions about the individual's reproductive health, including the right to make decisions about the individual's reproductive health care, to use or refuse contraception, to continue the individual's pregnancy and give birth or to terminate the individual's pregnancy. Now, the individual, in quote, is referring to minors, which is primarily what... Um, uh, among adults as well, uh, as of concern to many, it creates a new crime to interfere, a crime of interference with a health care facility, sets maximum penalties of 364 days in jail, one day short of a felony qualifying for state prison and a fine of $6,250. It empowers individuals to go to court to enforce their rights. It safeguards gender affirming health care for minors and others, and it provides legal protection for providers who carry out the procedures allowed under Oregon law, plus patients and others who assist them, even if they are from another state. So in other words, a young girl hooked up with an older man or someone has assaulted a young person, that person cannot be held accountable for uh, moving them toward an abortion. It blocks Oregon courts and agencies from cooperating with out-of-state investigations as well. So justice in other states will not be pursued. Well, the Republican legislative leader, Senator Ted Knope of Bend and Representative Vicki Breeze Iverson of Prineville, they've attempted to shift the debate to align with the patient rights movement. Oregon voters have rejected six attempts between 1978 and 2018 to ban or limit abortion, including requirements for parental notification when minors are involved. So it uh, may, as predicted, be a foregone conclusion, but they did want to at least give a courtesy to objectors to the bill that, in fact, it... Um, Uh, Their voices, rather, were heard. Now, House Bill 2002 is 46 pages long. It's very difficult to understand. Even the chief sponsor of the bill, Senator Elizabeth Steiner, didn't understand some key changes that it would make. Uh, There's a group of um, pro-life organizations, uh, pro-family, pro-parents groups, Unite Oregon Now. They're very concerned, as we all should be, about House Bill 2002. It would allow children of any age to get reproductive health, as it's referred to, reproductive health care without parental approval, oversight, consent, or even knowledge. And it places a wedge between parents and their children, including nine-year-olds or younger. And it allows the government, an arbitrary doctor, to decide what's best for a child. The bill uh, continues to allow minors over 15 to get any medical services without parental consent or knowledge. It erodes parent-child relationships. Parents know the medical and psychological histories of their children best. They need to be involved. Most children lack the emotional maturity and neurological development to make major decisions with lifelong impact by themselves. But this legislation suggests they do. Parents provide the best guidance for children in abusive situations. Providers already have the responsibility to find other supportive resources. So that cannot be raised as an objection. And parents are financially, legally, and morally responsible for their children. 
If there is a side effect or life-threatening consequence of a treatment, parents need to know what treatments their children uh, have had. And children deserve the best medical care available, and that requires a parent's involvement whenever possible. And one final thing, sex traffickers, pedophiles, and kidnappers will benefit from this bill as it allows them to conceal exploited children. Without parental consent, no one would know these children are missing or kidnapped when they're not, they are brought to a clinic for reproductive care, as the euphemism goes. If the bill passes, and it very likely will, clinics would, uh, would not need to make any effort to contact a child's parents. And not only are the 46 pages of the bill itself complex and confusing, uh, but the summaries are confusing as well. And this was taken up in the House today, this morning. And again, it will go to the Senate if passed. And I haven't had the opportunity today to check on that without going to a committee for further debate. We'll follow that uh, legislation and let you know tomorrow where it stands. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Quick break and we'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. want to let you know there is an $18,000 get up contest, get caught up contest. Starts today, runs through the 11th of June. Let us help you pay off some debt. You can win your share of up to $18,000 in the Get Caught Up contest. Here's what you uh, what you can do to, to uh, enter to win. A grand prize of up to $10,000 <clears> of debt relief, three first prize winners of up to $1,000, and 10 second prize winners will get $500 in debt relief. That's $18,000 total. Uh, enter to win your share in the $18,000 giveaway, the Get Caught Up contest at kpdq.com. I need to check that out. This is the first I've heard of it myself. I could use some Get Caught Up money. Oh, that's right. I can't uh, enter to win. Well, Democrat lawmakers in Oregon want to decriminalize homeless camps with a law that would allow people who live in them to sue for $1,000 if they're harassed or told to leave. Now, this made international headline news. The hugely controversial bill claims decriminalization of rest. That's how they referred to it. The decriminalization of rest would allow city leaders to redirect cash from law enforcement into measures that address the root causes of homelessness and poverty. But the radical proposal comes with an explosion of camps in cities like, well, mine, Portland, which has one of the worst crime rates in America, causing some people to move away. Well, the new homelessness bill has been met with furious complaints from citizens who claim Oregon's metropolitan areas have been ravaged by progressive policies that have cut police budgets while crime and drug use has spiraled out of control. Yeah, that pretty much sounds familiar. The bill, House Bill 3501, sponsored by a Democrat Representative Farah Chiachi and her colleague, Representative Khan Fan, it will be discussed at a hearing in the state's capitol on the 4th of this month in the House Committee on Housing and Homelessness. Many persons in Oregon have experienced homelessness as a result of economic hardship, a shortage of safe and affordable housing, the inability to obtain gainful employment and a uh, disintegrating social safety net system. The bill states, well, there's some truth in all of that. Decriminalization, it goes on to suggest decriminalization of rest allows local governments to redirect resources from local law enforcement activities to activities that address the root cause of homelessness and poverty. Now, if that... um, decriminalization of rest means that someone can camp in front of your residence or in an area that you feel unsafe and you attempt to make them move, then you are now criminalized. 
More than 2,000 letters of opposition have been submitted uh, compared to just 41 in support of the bill. The bill would allow homeless people to use and move freely in public spaces without discrimination and time limitations, essentially stating they can reside in parks and on other public land indefinitely without question. Indefinitely without question. It goes on to read, A person experiencing homelessness has a privacy interest and a reasonable expectation of privacy in any property belonging to the person, regardless of whether the property is located in a public space. Well, a public property does not belong to the person, but that's how the bill reads. It would grant people experiencing homelessness the right to rest in public places and seek protection from adverse weather conditions. The bill further promises the right to pray, meditate, worship, and practice religion in public spaces without discrimination based on housing status. I'm not sure what that is addressing. The bill also specifies a right to live in a vehicle or RV on a public land, provided that the vehicle is legally parked. Any person whose rights under the proposal are breached is entitled to compensatory damages or $1,000 per violation, whichever is greater. Penalties of $1,000 could be given to anyone who's deemed to have harassed a homeless person. Now, harassed a homeless person. Now, if, you're, if, if you're harassing someone and threatening their safety, uh, that's one thing. If someone has a vehicle parked in front of your home and you have small children and it, it's an unsavory situation, that would be quite another. But it would decriminalize rest under the um, legislation. Again, the hearing coming up on the 4th. Wow. Well, Shamia Fagan has apologized and says she exercised poor judgment by contracting with a company regulated by state audits that she oversees. Somehow didn't see the conflict of interest until it was exposed. The Oregon Secretary of State has uh, terminated her contract with, um, I think it's Veredi or something like that, Holdings LLC, an affiliate of the marijuana di- dispensary chain LaMata. She made the announcement in a news release on Monday, a few days after her spokesperson argued that she faced no conflict of interest working as a paid consultant for the owners of the marijuana dispensary chain while overseeing a state audit of cannabis regulation. What could possibly go wrong? She said, I owe the people of Oregon an apology. I exercised poor judgment by contracting with a company that is owned by my significant political donors and is regulated by an agency that was under audit by my audits division. She said in a news release on Monday, I am sorry for harming the trust that I've worked so hard to build with you over the last few years, and I will spend the next two years working hard to rebuild it, end quote. She started working for the owners of LaMata in February, according to a report published by Willamette Week. In the news release Monday morning, Fagan said she began teaching a class at Willamette University, the law school, and working as an independent contractor consulting the um, holding outside of Oregon. Uh, for supplemental income. She earned $77,000 a year as the Oregon Secretary of State, but needed supplemental income. Following news of her side job late last week, state Republican leaders accused Fagan of ethics violations and called on her to resign. On Friday, the governor, Tina Kotek, called on the Oregon Governor's Commission to investigate Fagan's actions and for the Oregon Department of Justice to look into a recent audit of cannabis industry regulations to see if there was any 
uh, clear violation. I diligently follow the Oregon Government Ethics Commission's published guidelines for private employment of public officials. The same exact ethics rule I followed for a decade since I became a legislator in 2013, Fagan said on Monday. I look forward to the findings of the Oregon Government's Ethics Commission because they will confirm that I followed Oregon ethics rules and laws. I am also eager for the Department of Justice's review of the OLCC audit because the review will verify that hardworking auditors in the Oregon Audits Division conducted their work with independence and integrity. Democrat Washington Governor Jay Inslee will not seek re-election in 2024, he announced on Monday, ending speculation over whether he would seek an unprecedented fourth term in office. Unlike most states, Washington does not impose any term limits on governors. Uh, Inslee was the second governor to serve out three terms. He also ran an unsuccessful presidential bid in the 2020 Democratic primary, where he focused mostly on climate issues. Serving the people as governor of Washington state has been my greatest honor. During a decade of dynamic, dy- dynamic change, we've made Washington a beacon of progress for the nation. I'm ready to pass the torch, Inslee wrote in a statement. Now is the time to intensely focus on all we can accomplish in the next year and a half. And I intend to do just that, he went on to say. I look forward to continued partnership with legislators and community leaders to address Washington's homelessness crisis, speed our efforts to expand behavioral health services, continue our fight against climate change and continue making Washington a beacon of progress for all. While Inslee's retirement opens the door for a more hotly contested election in 2024, the seat is likely to remain in Democrats control given Washington's deep blue voting history. But until votes are actually cast and counted, you can't uh, can't speculate on the outcome. Former President Trump will participate in a presidential town hall hosted by CNN in New Hampshire next week to answer questions from Republican and independent residents who intend to vote in the 2024 primary. Anchor Caitlin Collins will moderate the event, which will take place on Wednesday, May the 10th at 9 p.m. Eastern Time, 6 hour time. Trump's planned appearance comes after he hinted on his social media platform, Truth Social, recently that he would uh, consider boycotting at least one of the GOP primary debates because of potentially adversarial moderators. The Congressional Budget Office and Janet Yellen warned that Treasury could run out of money by early June. Uh, Both the Treasury Secretary and the Congressional Budget Office say that the U.S. government could run out as early as June, moving up the deadline for President Biden to strike a deal with congressional Republicans to raise the debt ceiling. Yellen, in a Monday letter to House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, wrote, after reviewing recent federal tax receipts, our best estimate is that we will be unable to continue to satisfy all of the government's obligations by early June and potentially as early as June 1st if Congress does not raise or suspend the debt limit before that time. The CBO released a similar conclusion because tax receipts through April have been less than the Congressional Budget Office anticipated in February. We now estimate that there is a significantly greater risk that the Treasury will run out of funds in early June, the director Philip Swaggle wrote in a blog post. Previously, the CBO had projected that the nation would run out of funds at some point between July and September. Both Yellen and the CBO note that this projection is based on data currently available, but the actual date could vary if the underlying mix of revenues and spending materially changes.
Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our second hour, a conversation with Paul Willie. He's the director of the Portland Singing Christmas Tree, which is uh, hosting a night of worship Saturday, May the 6th. Two performances at 2 and 6 p.m. It's a sing-along, and there's an opportunity for dinner. All the important details you can find at singingchristmastree.org, or you can uh, listen up for our conversation in the second hour. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our second hour, a conversation with Paul Willie. He's the director of the Portland Singing Christmas Tree Choir. There's a night of worship coming up this weekend, Saturday, May the 6th. Two performances, 2 o'clock and 6 o'clock. This is like the um, like the um, hymn sing, an opportunity for you to join in with the choir in worship. And there's an opportunity to uh, purchase a pulled pork dinner that's uh, taking place between the two uh, performance uh, options, 2 o'clock and 6 o'clock, at 4 o'clock for $10. You can get all the important details, and we'll explain it all when he joins me in the second hour. Or you can go to singingchristmastree.org for all the details. You can also phone 503-557-8733 or TREE. The Supreme Court agreed to hear Loper Bright Enterprises versus Raimondo. It's a case that which could see an end to Chevron deference in which courts defer a federal agency's interpretation of an ambiguous statute. Well, the court limited its grant of centioria, and I never say that quite right, but to the second question presented, namely whether the court should overrule Chevron or at least clarify that statutory silence concerning controversial powers expressly but narrowly granted elsewhere in the statute does not constitute an ambiguity requiring deference to the agency. That's a lot to take in. But Justice Katanji Brown-Jackson recused herself because she heard arguments in this case when she was the D.C. Circuit Court. Uh, Jackson didn't participate in that court final opinion, being replaced by judge uh, another judge after President Joe Biden nominated her to fill Justice Stephen Breyer's seat. The case involves Loper Bright Enterprises. It's a family-owned Herring Fishing Company. They operate in New England waters. A National Marine Fisheries Service regulation requires that herring fishing boats allow an additional person on board to serve as a monitor, tracking compliance with federal regulations. Well, the monitor's salary must be paid by the fishing company being monitored, reducing fishing profits in a business where margins are tight. Well, Loper Bright Enterprises and other fishing companies sued to challenge the rule, saying the, uh, uh, the act doesn't mention payment of the monitor, but the district court ruled against the industry. A divided panel in the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals ruled that the agency had appropriately interpreted the statute deferred under the Chevron framework. Well, Judge Justin Walker dissented, arguing that Congress did not authorize the National Marine Fisheries Service to make herring fishermen in the Atlantic pay the wages of federal monitors. Well, the Biden administration had urged the Supreme Court not to take up the case in an amicus brief, arguing it is an unsuitable vehicle in which to modify or overrule Chevron, which is the ruling um, decision. Well, the plaintiffs and their legal representatives celebrated the Supreme Court's move to take up the case. The Supreme Court has an opportunity to correct one of the most consequential judicial errors in a generation. Chevron deference has proven corrosive to the American system of checks and balances and directly contributed to an unaccounted executive branch overbearing bureaucracy and runaway regulation. Cause of Action Institute, Counsel Ryan Mulvey, said in a statement obtained by National Review of the case. Counsel of Record, Paul Clement, 
concurred and said, we look forward to our day in court. Bill Bright, a New Jersey fisherman and plaintiff in this case, explained that the justices hold his way of life in their hands. We hope they will keep our families and our community in mind as they weigh their decision, Bright said in a statement to National Review. Well, after examining over 150 recent appellate cases, the Cato Institute, which filed an amicus brief in this case, concluded that courts of appeals can um, defer under Chevron with regularity, despite the Supreme Court's increasing reluctance to invoke the doctrine. Chevron will not fade away completely until the Supreme Court overrules it, the group added. Well, the, the court is going to take up a case where they might uh, do just that. A review of the private calendar of Jeffrey Epstein has revealed that the convicted sex offender and financier had meetings not previously reported on with several prominent Americans, including the current CIA director. And The question now is... Why? Epstein had meetings scheduled with now director of the Central Intelligence Agency, William Burns, President Barack Obama's White House counsel, Catherine Rumler, Bard College President Leon Bolstein and Professor Noam Chomsky, according to The Wall Street Journal. The journal could not confirm that all the scheduled meetings took place. None of the names uh, the new documents have revealed appear in Epstein's now public black book of contacts or in the uh, flight logs of passengers who traveled on his private jet. The meetings in question all occurred after Epstein had served jail time in 2008 for a sex crime involving a minor. Epstein had been accused of uh, abusing girls as uh, young as 14 in Florida two years earlier and was investigated by the FBI. He reached a deal with prosecutors to avoid federal charges and pled guilty to soliciting and procuring a minor for prostitution. Epstein also registered as a sex offender. At the time, the news prompted a lot of media coverage, with several politicians returning donations and a number of associates distancing themselves from him. Burns first met with Epstein in Washington, D.C. in 2014 when he was Deputy Secretary of State. The now CIA director also traveled to Epstein's townhouse in New York. Despite these meetings, a CIA spokeswoman asserted that the pair had no relationship. The director did not know anything about him other than that he was introduced as an expert in the financial services sector and offered general advice on transition to the private sector. She explained to the journal, referencing Burns' departure from his role at state. A major United Nations meeting has collapsed because of its promotion of radical sexuality education for children. It was the 56th session of the Commission on Population and Development that concluded April 14th with no negotiated outcome between governments, resulting in the failure of yet another multi-million dollar U.N. session as a result of vociferous opposition to extreme ideological agendas. Spearheaded by the U.N. Population Fund, the primary driver of abortion promotion within the U.N. system, the commission has a history of repeated failures given robust opposition from governments committed to preventing the spread of Western ideological colonization to their lands. Despite immense diplomatic pressure from the United States, the European Union, Canada, Australia and the United Kingdom and others, Promoting comprehensive sexuality education, as well as procedural tactics meant to wear out diplomats negotiating for weeks long into the night. Governments primary, uh, primarily representative of the developing world held firm to uphold their national laws and norms on the dignity of human life, parental rights and the family. These U.N. processes make clear that the export, export, exportation rather of Western dogma is predicted um, and uh, predicated on the silencing of dissent. The hope of ideological driven governments and their U.N. accomplices is 
to infantilize countries that oppose their worldview, leveraging a combination of inducements and threats to capture their support. Fortunately, many delegates at the session expressed exasperation with the West's myopic focus on radical agendas to the detriment of their urgent and universally agreed upon developmental needs, particularly in the areas of education policy. And while an ostensible failure given the sheer waste of diplomatic efforts and resources, governments dedicate significant focus to the negotiations of this process for several weeks every year. This should be heralded as a notable, though costly, victory. A suspect on the uh, run in uh, Texas after allegedly killing five neighbors execution style on Friday night when they complained about him firing a rifle uh, on his property has been deported from the country five times. A source from ICE uh, told Fox News Digital the FBI said Sunday afternoon authorities have no leads in the search for Francisco Oropeso, 38 year old a Mexican national who is accused of um Quintuple murders in Cleveland, Texas, outside Houston. The Texas governor's office, state agencies and the FBI are offering a combined $80,000 reward for tips leading to his capture. Oropeso was in the country illegally at the time of the shooting and had previously reentered the country illegally multiple times following his deportations. Another ICE source also said Wilson Garcia, who lost his wife and son in the shooting, told local news station KTRK TV they were preparing to call the police after they asked Orpeso to stop shooting his AR-15 because it was late and their one-month-old baby couldn't sleep. Then Orpeso entered their home, started shooting before they could contact the police. Two women were also found lying on top of three children, all of whom survived in an apparent attempt to shield bullets from the shooter. A Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, or FDIC, has accepted a bid from J.P. Morgan Chase Bank to assume all deposits of First Republic Bank, the California Department of Financial Protection and Innovation announced early this morning. The San Francisco-based bank has struggled since the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank in early March, and it was widely seen as the bank's most um, likely to collapse next. The banking franchise was the envy of most of the industry, and its clients mostly included the rich and powerful who rarely defaulted on their loans. Many of the bank's deposits, however, were uninsured as they were above $250,000 limit set by the FDIC. If First Republic were to fail, its depositors might not get all their money back, worrying analysts and investors alike. Well, these fears materialized in April when the bank's recent quarterly results show that depositors pulled out more than $100 billion from the bank as the banking crisis was affecting Silicon Valley Bank and New York's Signature Bank. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our second hour, a conversation with Paul Willie, director of the Portland Singing Christmas Tree. The Night of Worship is coming up this weekend, May the 6th at Sunset Church, 2 o'clock and 6 o'clock. You have an opportunity to sing along with the choir, some of your old favorites and some of the newer songs as well. All the details we'll discuss with Paul Willie when he joins me, along with his daughter, Aubrey, who joined us as well. That's coming up in our second hour. Scientists at MIT have unlocked a major breakthrough in the battle to reverse the effects of Alzheimer's disease, one that shows dramatic reductions in neuro 
degeneration. A report stated, well, the exciting achievement came about after researchers were able to interfere with an enzyme typically found to be overactive in the brain of Alzheimer's patients. The hyperactive enzyme CDK5 was treated with an unnamed peptide or string of amino acids. Uh, Every test conducted on mice revealed significant and promising results. This peptide has the ability to enter the brain, and in a couple of different models, the peptide shows protective effects against loss of neurons and also appears to be able to rescue some of the behavior deficits, the study author wrote. The hope with further testing is that this particular peptide might be a treatment for dementia, particularly dementia brought on by the CDK5 overactivity. The errant enzyme is triggered by a smaller protein called P35, which in Alzheimer's patients can become harmful when cleaved into a smaller protein known as P25, which is also connected to Parkinson's disease. The P25 protein then makes CDK5 hyperactive, according to the report. Pharmaceutical companies have tried to target P25 with a small molecule drug, but these drugs tend to cause side effects because they also interfere with other um Processes, So none of them have been tested in patients thus far. So this is promising. There are only two genders. A 12-year-old student was um, allegedly sent home from school after he refused to change his T-shirt that says there are only two genders. Liam Morrison, a seventh grader at Nichols Middle School in Middleborough, Massachusetts, said he was taken out of gym class on the 21st of March and met with school staff who told him um, the people were complaining about the statement on his shirt and that it made him them feel unsafe. His comments were picked up by popular Twitter account Libs of TikTok. Yes, words on a shirt made people feel unsafe. They told me that I wasn't in trouble, but it sure felt like I was. I was told that I would need to remove my shirt before I could return to class. When I nicely told them that I didn't want to do that, they called my father, he explained during the Middleborough School Committee meeting on the 13th of April. Thankfully, my dad, supportive of my decision, came to pick me up. What did the shirt say? Five simple words. There are only two genders, nothing harmful, nothing threatening, just a statement I believe to be a fact, said the 12-year-old. Long before Elon Musk and Apple co-founder Steve Wozniak signed a letter warning that artificial intelligence poses profound risks to humanity, British theological, or I should say theoretical physicist Stephen Hawking, there's a big difference, had been sounding the alarm on the rapidly evolving technology. The development of full artificial intelligence could spell the end of the human race, Hawking told the BBC in an interview way back in 2014. Hawking, who suffered from Amotrophic lateral sclerosis, or ALS, for more than 55 years, died in 2018 at the age of 76. Though he had critical remarks on AI, he also used a very basic form of the technology in order to communicate due to his disease, which weakens muscles and required Hawkins to use a wheelchair. His comments to the BBC in 2014 that AI would spell the end of the human race was in response to a question about potentially revamping the voice technology he relied on. He told the BBC that the very basic forms of AI had already proven powerful, but creating systems that rival human intelligence or surpass human intelligence could be disastrous for the human race. It would take off on its own and redesign itself at an ever increasing rate, he said. I guess I'm less concerned about artificial intelligence uh, condemning the human race than the intelligence we already have being misused in ways that I think we've only seen the tip of the iceberg on. Turkey's Erdogan fights for political survival 
and a tight race with presidential challenger, an election triumph by a former civil servant dubbed the Turkish Gandhi on May the 14th over Turkey's strongman leader Erdogan, uh, who has controlled the levers of power for 20 years in the strategically important country that straddles the Middle East and Europe would have far-reaching implications for U.S. foreign policy interests. Election polls uh, show a razor-close race between Erdogan and his Social Democratic Republican Party. Let's see, it's the Democratic Republican People's Party competitor, uh, who recently declared that he is a member of the persecuted Muslim minority community within a country dominated by Sunni Islam. Major blue states have been losing a large amount of adjusted gross income as it moved across state lines, according to IRS statistics from 2021, noted the Wall Street Journal. The data, which is released every spring, showed that Illinois lost a net 105,000 people in 21, which cost the state approximately $10.9 billion in AGI. New York similarly lost $24.5 billion in 21, and California $29.1 billion in AGI. Adjusted gross income in 2021. The data also found that while major blue states lost AGI, other states raked it in. The AGI of Florida, which has no state income tax, swelled to $39.2 billion in 2021, an increase from $23.7 billion in 2020. Some $9.8 billion of Florida's increase came from New York, while $3.9 billion came from Illinois, $3.7 billion from New Jersey, and $3.5 billion from California, the data shows. Texas also benefited from the blue state exodus, drawing $10.9 billion in 2021, according to the figures. Approximately half of Texas' increase was reportedly due to residents fleeing California. California's hemorrhaging population also contributed $4.4 billion to Nevada, $2.7 billion to Arizona, and $2 billion to Washington State. Illinois lost much of its income to its neighbors, but Florida, Texas, Indiana, and Wisconsin were the biggest beneficiaries. Mayorkas refuses to take accountability for unprecedented migration crisis shifts blame. Uh, Shifting the blame, the Department of Homeland Security Secretary on Sunday blamed Congress for not doing more to help with the growing migrant crisis and claimed the Biden administration is doing everything it can within a broken immigration system. Mayorkas made the remarks during an appearance on NBC's Meet the Press nearly two weeks after giving testimony before the House Homeland Security Committee, where he repeatedly claimed the U.S. border is secure. Well, China is using high-end technology to oppress its own citizens and even erase its own history, which is why the U.S. needs to put tough restrictions on the export of artificial intelligence and other technology to Beijing. Well, that according to a lawmaker who has a bill designed to do just that. Representative Mark Green out of Tennessee, a Republican, said that China has managed to use technology to erase national awareness of the Tiananmen Square massacre in 1989, when hundreds and possibly thousands were killed and many more injured. Despite the historical importance of Tiananmen Square, most people in China don't even know the massacre occurred, Green said. This is because the CCP, they scrubbed those events from its heavily censored Internet and has kept it out of books and out of school. Using its advanced technology, the Chinese Communist Party has erased its own history, end quote. Well, the regime steals American intellectual property and then undermines our national security, oppresses its own people and threatens global stability, he went on to add. My legislation will keep the Chinese Communist Party from getting access to our sensitive technology. His bill seeks to impose new export restrictions on technology use to create AI systems and other technology related to robotics, biotech, computing and Internet related services. 
Export restraints on those goods would be imposed when it would aid China's military, harm U.S. national security, or allow China to carry out violations of human rights or religious liberties against its own people. A recent federal ruling by a U.S. district court for the Southern District of Illinois on a gun law had a massive impact on local gun sales, shop owners reported on Saturday. Judge Stephen Patrick McGlynn he issued a temporary injunction on Friday against the enforcement of a gun law that would ban some semi-automatic weapons, penalize individuals who carry or possess certain assault weapons, in quotes, and require citizens to register with the Illinois State Police should they possess a weapon. McGlynn ruled that the law, which uh, was signed in January, uh, did not regulate the rights of people to defend themselves. It restricted uh, that right and in some cases completely obliterated that right by criminalizing the purchase and sale of more than 190 arms. And although the injunction was only in place for a day, large weekend crowds filled suburban gun shops. Democrat Attorney General Kwame Raoul has uh, since filed an appeal of the ruling as the decision moves to the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Seventh Circuit. CNN's Scott Jennings called out President Biden after making a joke about never taking questions from the media on Saturday during the White House Correspondents' Dinner, arguing the president was laughing at members of the press. On Biden, the line that will stick with me is, in a lot of ways, this dinner sums up my first two years in office. I'll talk for 10 minutes, take zero questions, and cheerfully walk away, end quote. Jennings said during a panel discussion on CNN, For the journalists in the room, he wasn't laughing with you. He was laughing at you. Jennings said Biden was uh, mocking the press. Well, let's see. We've got a news and traffic coming up here at the top of the hour in just a few moments. We'll continue uh, with one more segment of headline news and then a conversation with Paul Willie, who is director of the Portland Singing Christmas Tree, uh, hosting a night of worship. I'm planning on being there and I hope to see you there as well. That's this Saturday, May the 6th. There's a two o'clock and six o'clock performance. And if you choose, there's a an optional dinner for ten dollars pulled pork dinner between the performances. You can mix and mingle and either have it after or before. So we'll be talking about that in the second hour of today's program. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show News and Traffic up next. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're going to continue to take a look at some of the news headlines and then a conversation with Paul Willie, director of the Portland Singing Christmas Tree, hosting a night of worship to which you are cordially invited. It's not just the choir singing, although that would be glorious enough, but you are invited to sing along. So we'll provide all the important details. By the way, that's coming up this Saturday, May the 6th. There are two opportunities to worship together, 2 o'clock and 6 o'clock. Uh, PM. And for those of you who are so inclined, there's an opportunity to share dinner at four o'clock. So whether you're eating after you've gone to the concert or you're eating before you go to the six o'clock performance, and I say performance, meaning that you will be performing along with everyone else, you can enjoy a pulled pork dinner. Singingchristmastree.org. That's one way you can register. Uh, it's free admission, but they do ask for you to uh, register for a ticket. Or you can phone 503-557-8733. That's 503-557-TREE. But we'll cover all of that in just a few moments. Uh, let's see here. Democrat Chris Coons defended Vice President Harris, saying the vice president is ready to run and ready to be president. He defended the vice president on Sunday as she faces questions amid the president's um, 
2024 re-election campaign, arguing that she hasn't received the credit she deserves for her accomplishments in the administration. The vice president has faced criticism from the beginning of the administration, with her approval rating usually lagging below the president's. Her current average is, uh, rating is 42.1, which I believe is higher than his, according to the aggregation of um, 538, and it has dipped as low as 29% over the last two years. California will ban diesel vehicles by 2036. New big rigs and buses that run on diesel would not be sold in California starting in 2036, according to new rules approved by the state regulators on Friday, to wean the state off fossil fuels and combat climate change. The rule would tackle pollution from heavy trucks used to transport goods through ports and require companies to disclose their use of these so-called uh, drayage trucks by 2024. The rule cannot be implemented without approval by the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, but it's related to standards the Biden administration already approved last month to phase out diesel-powered box trucks. If you think uh, there are problems with the supply chain now, you get rid of diesel transporting goods from uh, ports in the future. Alejandro Mayorkas defined a secure border. The Homeland Security Secretary said Sunday that he's focused on getting congressional support to five uh, to fix rather the broken immigration system in the U.S. as the Biden administration braces for what is expected to be a record surge in migration across the southern border. The administration and its border officials are bracing for a massive surge in migrants when the COVID restrictions known as Title 42 end on the 11th of this month. Federal immigration authorities said last week that local officials are already short on the money and space needed to handle the expected migrants. The new definition of secure border just dropped. What's the definition of a secure border to you? Alejandro Mayorkas says it's it is maximizing the resources that we have available to us to deliver the most effective results. OK, you could say that about just about anything. What is the definition of a clean kitchen? Well, it's maximizing the resources that we have available to us to deliver the most effective results. Does that include washing dishes or not? Senator Bernie Sanders is suggesting government should take all profit above $999 million. You earn more than that? That belongs to the government. Well, the senator said in an interview this week that he believes that all money people make over $999 million per year should be confiscated by the government. Are you basically saying that once you get to $999 million, the government should confiscate all the rest? Bernie Sanders said, I'm saying that we should go back to a very progressive tax policy. Over $1 billion basically all goes to the government, Sanders says. Yeah. An FAA report reveals airlines are responsible for canceled flights rather than inclement weather. A new report revealed that Airlines not weather was the leading cause of canceled flights, leaving thousands of people stranded at airports. Investigators with the Government Accountability Office released findings from a new government report that found that the surge in flight cancellations post-pandemic was due to factors that airlines have control over, including cancellations from maintenance issues or lack of a crew. Staffing shortages have contributed to the problem, although Congress provided about $54 billion for airlines to retrain their employees during the pandemic. They reduced their workforce with early retirements or other incentives to lower costs. Francisco Oropezo is a suspect in a mass shooting Friday in a rural Texas neighborhood. He's the next door neighbor of his shooting victims. He shot four members of a family execution style in their home. A fifth person, an eight-year-old child, was flown to a hospital and later died. 
As of Sunday morning, the manhunt is still underway. San uh, Jacinta County Sheriff Greg Capers said they were able to identify Orpeza through a Mexican consulate card and a doorbell camera. What um, they haven't been able to do is actually find him or explain why he is in the country. The groomers are winning. According to a recently released report from the CDC, as of 2021, one in four high school students identify as LGBTQ. This represents a massive spike from just 11 percent of high school students identifying as such in 2015. What accounts for this growth in gender disorientation among America's youth? Well, the short answer is indoctrination and grooming. For example, Democrat lawmakers in Minnesota are pushing this social contagion even harder as they seek to change the legal definition of sexual orientation to be based on expressed identity and not biological sex. Even more disturbingly, they aim to eliminate any negative association surrounding pedophilia. There's only one word for this, and it's grooming. The FBI assures us by saying we're not spying on as many Americans. From December of 2020 through November of the following year, the FBI queried some 3.4 million Americans under Section 702 of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, or FISA. The following year, the number of FBI queries dropped 94 percent, totaling 204,000. What explains the sudden drop? The number spiked after January 6th, the riot came, and it fell after the Democrats' subsequent sham January 6th committee investigation played out. If the FBI can use the FISA as a tool to target American citizens, then Section 702, which is up for reauthorization this year, requires significant reforms at the very least. Americans are still in Sudan after abruptly shutting down the U.S. embassy in Sudan and leaving last week due to growing unrest in the war-torn nation, a move that left more than 16,000 Americans behind. The Biden administration over the weekend changed course after justifying the initial decision to leave Americans to fend for themselves based on intelligence. The administration is now working to evacuate these non-government U.S. citizens. Why the sudden shift? Well, it took getting embarrassed by other countries that acted to protect their citizens and reporters noticing and questioning this for the Biden administration to finally be motivated to act. This is not leadership. It's negligence, indifference, born out of cowardice. Regulators seized First Republic and the second largest bank failure in U.S. history. The Fed admits fault for the Silicon Valley bank collapse in an unflinching report. All nine Supreme Court justices issued a rare statement after leftist attacks on conservative justices. And President Joe Biden's daily schedule reportedly consists of limited work hours and lots of personal time as concerns about the 80 year old president's ability to serve a second term rise within the party. Some suggest he's already on partial retirement. Tim Scott set May 22nd to announce his 2024 presidential bid and more universities are jumping on the trend of holding race-based graduation events. California approved a diesel truck sale ban for 2036 and the North Carolina Supreme Court handed Republican election law victories, citing judicial restraint. And finally, the IRS is hiring hundreds of armed agents. I know I feel safer. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Quick break. We'll be back in a moment to talk with Paul Willie from the Portland Singing Christmas Tree. He's the director. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. 
is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Now, many of you know that one of my great loves is the Portland Singing Christmas Tree Choir. I know the choir members. I'm there when things are developing and unfolding, and it's a ministry to our city that is, from my perspective, unparalleled in so many ways. Well, what you may not know is, in addition to the choir coming together for Christmas, is a night of worship. Now, you might know it as the hymn sing. We're broadening that just a bit to talk a little bit about that and about his role as the director of the Portland Singing Christmas Tree Choir is Paul Willie. I'm so uh, delighted to have you with us. And I should mention that Aubrey, your daughter, is also here with us. Yes, she is. My eight-year-old daughter, Aubrey. Thank you for being here, kiddo. Yeah. Well, okay. Night of Worship is coming up here next weekend. Can you explain what that is? Now, some of our listeners are familiar with the hymn sing, but may not be familiar with the Night of Worship. Others are perhaps hearing it for the first time. Absolutely. You know, this whole idea came about because our audience at Christmas time said, you know, we love the Portland Singing Christmas Tree, but we sure wish we could spend time with them in between the Christmas seasons. And we thought, what better way than to pair that with an evening where we can spend time in worship together? And so the hymn sing was born, call it eight, nine years ago. And that was wonderful. And we come together from 70 different uh, denominations. It's a free event. Anyone can come and be a part. And everyone gets to be a part of the choir because we're all singing together in worship. This year, we thought we'd do something a little bit different. And that's where we're going to expand the aperture a bit of music that we're selecting from. We'll open with some of the classic hymns that we've always had in years past. And then we're beginning to go toward maybe some choruses and worship music from the 90s and early 2000s all the way up to current day. And and the idea is that no matter what age you are, young and old, no matter what walk of life, no matter what denomination or where you are at in your faith, we all have something in common, and that is a belief in our Lord Jesus Christ and a time together of worship is what we thought would be really special. You know, it's such a unique thing when the body of Christ comes together and they lift their voices in song and in worship. It's such a unique experience and it reminds us that we are connected to one another by virtue of our common heritage in Christ. And when you have folks coming from various churches in the area, not just their local church, and singing together, it is a glorious experience and glorious sound. And I've never been to one of these events where I haven't shed tears, just looking over the audience and hearing those voices, and that we know these songs together and we we sing them. It's just such a blessing. Do you know what inspired this, uh, other than just having another opportunity for us as the choir and for the uh, community here to come together? You know, a couple things. First off, we really began to think about the Portland Singing Christmas Tree as a ministry. And we've always felt that way over the past 61 years. But as part of a ministry, we can't just look at ministry as a once-a-year type of a thing. Um, and, and you know, when we began our, when we began our, our uh, rehearsals as a choir, we always open in worship. And I got to be honest, out of our two and a half hours each week together, the time I love the most is in fellowship and worship. And that we, we began to think, wouldn't that be something special to do with our community? And so the idea kind of was born from that. What's been really special, though, and you nailed it, is um, when you get together a body of believers, our belief in Christ, our love for him, and as we lift our voices together, it's the very glimpse of what I imagine heaven mm. to be like when, uh, when, we all, when we all move on. But it's really a special thing, um, and, and I think w- uh, when we get into our night of worship, just like in our hymn sings, as you close your eyes and you listen to everyone lift their voice, it's just the most beautiful thing in the world. And when we mention everyone lifting their voice, this is an audience participation event. It's not just the choir bringing the music. 
But the audience is encouraged and I think it is unable to not <laughs> sing, <laughs> is encouraged to join in song as well. So this is a night of worship that involves everyone. That's exactly right. Yeah. Uh, we encourage everyone, young and old, um, lift your voices with us. This is not so much a concert as it is just a time to sing together. Um, and fortunately, we have some amazing singers that will be with us, uh, yourself included, which I am so appreciative of. But we'll have some amazing people a part of this, including our choir, um, and we, we look forward to hearing and uh, seeing everybody there. The thing I appreciate about this is that while the Singing Christmas Tree Choir will be featured, there'll be a couple of songs that the choir will just perform that help us to just reflect on who God is. Um, but it's an opportunity uh, for us to, to come together um, at this time of the year and, and lift our voices and be reminded of, of, you know, who this really is about. And that's really been the focus of the Singing Christmas Tree from the very beginning. That's exactly right. You know, I think what's been really amazing to see also is, um, you know, when, when we go to church on Sundays, uh, churches oftentimes have multiple services. So they are in a programmed period of time to open a service, get through worship, go through the message, come out the other side, and then dismiss and bring the next group in. And we really want our night of worship to be one where we can come in, we can be in the sanctuary and at the presence of our Lord and just uh, and just be. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one of the nicest things is when you take some time constraints out and you can just spend time in worship, you really can begin to dismiss all those things that distract you during your day or things that are going on in your life, and you can just spend time with the Father. And that that we just think is uh, is really important. I think it's important to mention as well that um, this is a free event. Uh, you need to get a ticket so we know you're coming, but you can attend for free. Now, this is a, an opportunity. Uh, there'll be a free will offering taken at, at some point to help support the ongoing work of the Portland Singing Christmas Tree. But if you've never heard the choir, if you've loved the choir, or you're just a little bit curious, this is the event for you. It's your casual introduction, and we want to encourage you to take full advantage of that. Another element of this evening is I remember growing up, we'd have potluck at church. You'd have the service, and then you'd have Uh, dinner together. There's an opportunity for that as well between the two o'clock and the six o'clock performances. That's exactly right. Yes, uh, we have a dinner, a seated dinner. Um, It's uh, $10 a head and all you have to do is reach out to our box office at 503-557-TREE or 8733. Um, Or you can also just go to singingchristmastree.org to to get that ticket. But yes, we will have a dinner together, a time of fellowship over a meal in between the two o'clock and the and the six o'clock. That dinner starts at right about four o'clock. Okay. Now I should mention that uh, there are two opportunities to come together for worship. As you mentioned, there's the two o'clock and there's six o'clock. In between those two is an opportunity to come together uh, for a meal and fellowship. And I would encourage you to take full advantage of this opportunity. Maybe you just need to be encouraged. Maybe you're a closet singer. Maybe you just miss having choir in church. This is a great uh, time for us to come together. And really the focus of attention isn't the choir or the soloist. It's him. We're focusing our attention upward, an audience of one. And what a glorious experience it is when we stand in his presence, recognizing that we are there together as believers in Jesus and we can worship him. That just delights his heart. It really does. And um, I always I always leave more fulfilled than when I showed up. Yes. And I think that's the best part. Yeah, absolutely. Now, if you'd like more information, there are a couple of things you can do. You can go to the website, uh, singingchristmastree.org, and you, all the details are there. Um, You can also phone the box office at 503-557-8733, 503-557-TREE, essentially. Or you can can connect with Patty at singingchristmastree.org if you've got questions. Again, 
the admission is free. However, if you want to take advantage of the pulled pork sandwich dinner between the performances, you can say, yeah, me and my family, a party of 15. Let's go with 15. <laughs> We're going to show up. We'd like to eat and have some fellowship either before or after uh, the performance that we're going to be a part of. Also, if you would like preferred sing- seating, there is that opportunity for a donation of either 25 or $50, and you can be seated in a particular area. Uh, we call it preferred seating. If you are in need of uh, wheelchair seating, also give us a call, and we can reserve a spot for you. Again, that number, 503-557-TREE. That's 503 557 Now, tell us a little bit about the choir that's going to be participating uh, for the evening. You bet. So um, our our Singing Christmas Tree Choir is about 175 people in total. And when it comes to uh, time for our night of worship, it's whoever has available and uh, has the, uh, the means to be able to be a part of uh, this time. So we'll be about 80 to 85 in number. Um, and, and, uh, we'll be at Sunset Church out, uh, in, uh, on the west side of town. The best part about Sunset is, 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 it's, it's this nice sized auditorium, great sized stage, and we'll have a band right in the middle. So we'll put the band right in the dead, dead center, our choir flanking on either side, um, in 80 to 85, uh, uh, in number, as I mentioned. Now, our, our choir, um, this is a family of believers and singers and musicians that come together year over year. And some of these folks have been part of our organization for 30 plus years. Mm-hmm. It's a multi-generational thing. We have grandmothers, mothers, and kids and, and, uh, and, and kind of at all stages of their lives. But um, we'll have a little bit of all of that up on stage. Oh, I love it. I love it. Again, we're talking about the night of worship that's coming up this Saturday with performances at 2 o'clock and 6 o'clock. Now, I say performance. That means you and me and the choir all singing together in worship. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll continue our conversation in just a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show and my guest, Paul Willie, director of the Portland Singing Christmas Tree Choir. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with Paul Willie. He's the director of the Portland Singing Christmas Tree. And along with us in studio is Aubrey, his daughter. So it's delightful to have you here as well. Now, Paul, uh, I think some of our listeners will recall the director of the choir a couple of years ago. They'll remember the original director a few years before that. Paul Willie, you've been a part of the tree and a director um, for many years, but you are now the chief director. Can you tell us a little bit about that uh, that journey? You bet. You bet. I came into the organization in year 51, not my year 51, the, <laughs> <laughs> the organization um, and I was uh, I was one of two directors in the um, uh, in the uh, the Portland Singing Christmas Tree, and I loved it. I always have loved Portland Singing Christmas Tree and being a part of um, uh, uh, choirs around uh, around the city. But when I was asked to join, um, I got a chance to take on uh, the design and creative side of making the show happen, and then be able to direct a portion of the show too. And I did that from year 51 through year 59, thereabouts. And uh, what I've learned through that is um, this is a group of amazing musicians, incredible singers, but again, uh, people that come from all walks of life for uh, a key purpose, and that is a ministry um, and an opportunity to share the good news of Jesus Christ to our our city. Now, what's happened is over that over that time, as we got to year 59 and into year 60, um, our uh, my partner in in directing ha- moved out of state, and so now I've become the director of the entirety of this organization um, from a musical perspective. 
the good part is um, uh, many hands make light work uh, make light work for all of us, and we have uh, other great volunteers and other staff members. But for me, this has been a dream come true. I love Christmas. I love music, and I especially love working with choirs. And you don't see a lot of choirs around mm-hmm. uh, right. the greater part of our city or even across the uh, the United States. So to have a choir like this of nearly 200 people uh, and a youth choir on top of that where we can come together and do something really special, that's a pretty amazing thing. Now, I should mention that in addition to being an excellent musician, you are also a fine vocalist. You've been featured as a soloist over the years as well, you've got a beautiful, clear tenor voice, which is, I think, my favorite is the, the male tenor. I think <laughs> maybe you. because my voice is becoming more and more tenor <laughs> as I get older. But anyway, it's uh, it's been fun to hear you sing and then to see you elevated to this position. I, I have to admit, um, was it year 60 that you took the helm um, solo for the first time? It is, yes. Um, I wasn't aware of that transition until pretty much late into our, our season. And I was concerned, not that I thought you wouldn't be able to handle it, but that was a lot of responsibility that came to you relatively late in that process. And I'm telling you, you stepped up and it was really um, amazing to see you take that on with such a cheerful attitude and such joy that it was contagious for the rest of us. So first of all, I want to commend you for your skill and ability, but also thank you for being willing to step up. It's a huge undertaking to um, herd cats together into <laughs> into a choir. You're talking about adults and children and all the tech people and the band people. There are so many elements that people who come to the Singing Christmas Tree are unaware of, you know, thankfully. Right, you just get right. to come and enjoy the show. So there's a lot that goes into that. But you stepped into that role, took it on with joy, and it's been a real pleasure from that day to the present. Well, I sure appreciate that, and thank you. Um, I, uh, first of all, the organization has made it very easy for me, as has the choir. Um, you know, when you found out that I was going to be leading Year 60, that was maybe a week before I found out I was going to be <laughs> leading Year 60. And, uh, and in, in essence, um, my, my partner in, uh, in directing had some, uh, some medical issues. So um, out of necessity, I had to step into, um, into directing the entirety of the show. But, you know, I, I really am, am grateful and thankful for the, the people, the volunteers, um, and and for people like yourself who are, honestly had a lot of grace with me as I stepped into this, too. But you know what I think is so great is um, th- this uh, this organization has endured so much over its 60, now 61 mm-hmm. years. Changes of directors, changes of venues, financial ups and downs. But, you know, I really believe something, and that is that God has the organization here for a purpose. And every year we commit that year and that season to him. He continues to open doors. He continues to make things happen and orchestrate all those details for us that if our job is simply to be obedient and step into his will— he makes everything else happen. And so for that, I am I'm truly grateful. Yeah, absolutely. Now, we're talking about a night of worship that's coming up this Saturday at Sunset Presbyterian Church. There are two opportunities to come join us, 2 o'clock p.m. and 6 o'clock p.m. And if you're thinking, hmm, when would I fit dinner into that? There's also an opportunity to purchase a meal at 4 o'clock. So if you come to the 2 o'clock, you can eat at 4. If you're going to the 6 o'clock, you can come early and eat at 4. And we'll all fellowship together. We'll be offering a pulled pork sandwich dinner. And I'm telling you, the food is good. Um, so you need to purchase and reserve your um, uh, your space for that when you reserve your free ticket, your admission ticket. And again, dinner begins at four. You can do all of that in a number of ways. You can call the box office at 503-557-8733. That's 503-557-TREE. You can also email Patty at 
singingchristmastree.org. Patty at singingchristmastree.org. And by the way, Patty is spelled with an I rather than a Y. Patty at singingchristmastree.org. Or online, you can go to singingchristmastree.org and uh, do all of that um, as well. Now, we're going to be performing at Sunset Presbyterian Church. The Singing Christmas Tree has a relatively new relationship with uh, Sunset Presbyterian. The pandemic changed a lot of things. Can you explain a little bit as as to why the Singing Christmas Tree is now at Sunset Presbyterian and or Sunset Church, and why uh, how they've been so generous to make that and allow that to happen? Absolutely. So coming out of the pandemic, as we had a chance to reemerge doing live uh, shows again, we had to look and take stock in where does our audience really want to. To be uh, in in attending our shows, and we did a survey. We asked all of our patrons from five years prior and said, "We're looking at returning downtown. Uh, your, what's your comfort level around that?" And we found out resounding: people did not feel comfortable, nor did they want to pay for parking, and it logistically created a lot of challenges for our audience. And that's really who we're here for: is is in service of our community and our and our patrons. So uh, Sunset Church very generously opened their doors to us and allowed us to come in for that. Um, that first year back, uh, and that was actually year 59 at the at the time. Um, and what we found was, wow, here is this beautiful auditorium, um, an incredible staff that has, has opened their doors to us. And uh, our audience and our patrons, as they came in, said, oh, my goodness, this is really easy to find. It's right off the freeway. There's free parking. Um, I have no safety concerns. Um, this, even though it may be out on the west side of town, the difference as far as mm-hmm. time for folks to travel was pretty minimal. So uh, after that, Sunset has said, we love having you here. We love you being in our home, this being your home as well. Uh, and so we, we've very, uh, very graciously said uh, thank you and yes, please. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And they have been so very generous and gracious. You can imagine inviting a group of, you know, 300 people into your <laughs> into your house and they're there for a, a period of time. And they've just been Uh, as you pointed out, very uh, gracious in allowing us to do that. And they've opened their doors once again for the night of worship that's coming up this weekend, Saturday, this Saturday. Can you believe it? It's already May. It's 2 o'clock and 6 o'clock p.m. at Sunset Church. The admission is free. There will be a free will offering taken. uh, And donations will support the singing uh, Christmas tree and the ongoing ministry of uh, this 501c3. So make note of that. You have an opportunity for um, dinner in between performances at 4 o'clock p.m. Pulled pork sandwich dinner. I, I love saying pulled pork. <laughs> anyway, uh, that's available and you can purchase that when you reserve your admission ticket. Dinner begins at 4 o'clock. And again, all of this information can be found at singingchristmastree.org. You can call the box office at 503 557 8733, or you can email Patty at Patty with an I at singingchristmastree.org. And I'll make sure that information is on our website as well in case you're in your car and you're swerving around trying to make note of, uh, of all of this. Well, I am so looking forward to coming together this weekend with the choir, seeing my friends and hanging out again. We're excited to have <laughs> And just you. lifting our voices together in praise. Absolutely. Uh, Georgine, thank you. And thanks for being a part of this. Um, we're looking forward to having uh, the Greenwich Trio there as well. Oh, we have the yay. Sunset Band uh, as a part of this. It'll be a night um, and an afternoon uh, for all ages. Uh, so we look forward to it and hope to see everybody there. Again, that's this Saturday. Performances at 2 
and 6 p.m. Now, I say performance because you will be performing along with the choir, uh, singing along with us, songs that are familiar, some that you haven't heard in a long time, maybe an old hymn that you've loved, and some more contemporary music as well. It's going to be a wonderful night of worship, and we hope you will join us. It's a night you won't want to uh, to miss. Again, you can call 503-557-8733 to reserve your tickets, or if you have questions, you can email Patty with an I at singingchristmastree.org, or go to the website singingchristmastree.org thank you so much for joining us really appreciate it and thank you aubrey it's always a pleasure to see you as well she's a performer in the tree too in the children's choir so Mm -hmm. you can look for her next uh next fall or where is it fall or winter then we it's winter yeah (laughs) next time how about that hey you're listening to the georgine rice show we'll be back in a moment to wrap things up you're listening to the georgine rice show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Love that. Paul Willie, director of the Portland Singing Christmas Tree. Hope you'll join us uh, this weekend. Uh, speaking of the weekend, I had an opportunity on Sunday night to attend a celebration of the umpteenth years of service of one of the members of our community, Pastor Frank Carpenter. It might be a name that you're familiar with, or at least you might be familiar with the uh, the work that he has done in our community and beyond. Um, he has been serving others since 1980, and he's not yet done. Um, I was asked, along with my husband, Dan Rice, to provide a little bit of music for the evening. But I have to tell you, the focus of attention was the faithfulness of this servant, Uh, of the Lord. And it was an honor to be in his company along with so many others. Um, Members of the legislature uh, were there. I had an opportunity to see Charles Starr, who is, I believe, 91 years old, 91 and seven months. Uh, He offered the closing prayer. He served in the, uh, uh, the Senate in the Oregon legislature for a number of years. He started out serving on the uh, school board And uh, we're going to be talking uh, this week about the importance of the school board. And we're trying to get a couple of the candidates on as uh, that election is coming up. I think since the pandemic, we've come to appreciate the value of school board um, members more than ever before. But anyway, he started out there and ended up in the legislature. Just a delightful man. There was also a gentleman who ran for for governor, Greg uh, Wooldridge, who's a relatively new believer who was also there, along with many other. Pastor Jerry Probst was there to speak and so on. Well, Pastor Frank Carpenter was born in Southampton, England. His mother was a war bride. His father returned to the U.S. to build a family home before bringing the two of them home when Frank was about 10 months old. He was raised in Yahats. I'm never sure I say that right, but there you have it. He preached his first sermon when he was 13. He graduated from Walport High School, where he was the senior class president. He graduated from the University of Oregon in 1968, which was a feather in his cap from my perspective. He majored, as I did, in political science and started a church that grew out of Campus Crusade Group. He met his wife about a at a weekend uh, church retreat uh, there in Yahats in a cow pasture. So if you're looking for a spouse, don't rule anything out. After making him uh, cinnamon rolls, they married in 1974. Now, my guess is there was a lot more that happened between the cinnamon rolls and the marriage, but there you have it. He attended Western Seminary. He graduated with a Pastor of Divinity in 1977. He worked in Tucson for three years, where his wife um, uh, were Karen, Lisa, and Brittany. His daughters, I should say, were born. His wife worked at home to raise their family. And I love that he put it that way. She worked at home because that is a full-time job. That doesn't have breaks. There's no uh, no vacation time. There's no overtime. It's just uh, it's work that's the most rewarding 
and should be the highly uh, most highly cherished type of work. But nonetheless, he returned to Oregon in 1980. He was hired at Hillsborough First Baptist. And we were there this Sunday where they were honoring him and his ministry. In 1980, he started Iwana there. He also started Teenagers. That's with a K. It's a ministry for senior adults. Teenagers. It included Bible studies, day trips, longer trips to California and Canada, various meals out. In the mid-80s, he attended Presidential Prayer Breakfast, now known as the National Prayer Breakfast. He joined the Hillsborough Chamber of Commerce. He started the Mayor's Prayer Breakfast in Hillsborough. It's now known as the Hillsborough Prayer Breakfast, and that continues uh, to take place. He started Bible studies at the Oregon State Capitol in 1985. One day a week wasn't enough, so in 1997, that became a full-time ministry. He's had a significant impact on lawmakers here in the state of Oregon. He was a delegate to the National Republican Convention in both 88 and 92. He co-chaired the Hillsborough-Louise Palau week-long event in 97. He helped start Heritage Christian High School. He joined um, Ralph Drollinger Capital Ministries. Oregon became uh, the first state to begin serving with Capital Ministries. He was right there in the middle of that. In 2005, he moved to Arizona. All three of his girls were there in school. He worked for CAP, the Center for Arizona Policy, a pro-life, pro-family organization for about three years. Um, He was a member of Scottsdale Bible while there. The second week began a Bible study because that's what Frank Carpenter does. He's about God's word, teaching others and sharing the gospel. He came back to Hillsboro in 2012. He joined uh, the staff part time uh, at First uh, Baptist in Hillsboro. He leads a Bible study with civic leaders, educators, and church leaders. It's called Huddle. This is Pastor Frank Carpenter. And the Carpenters, who've been married for 49 years, have three daughters, seven grandchildren, and a dog named Cabo. Well, that's the life that we were um, we were honoring. Now, when he started out, you know, his first sermon when he was 13 years old, he never imagined he would have a life of effective ministry. But the one thing that characterized his work throughout was faithfulness. He was all in. The most important thing in his life was to honor God with the talents and the gifts and the calling that was on his life. And he decided he was going to be faithful in whatever he was called to. And one of the marks of the occasion of celebration was just that, that he was a man who had served faithfully for decades. Now, he's not finished. This wasn't a memorial. It was an opportunity to... uh, to express appreciation and gratitude and perhaps to inspire the rest of us to consider how important it is to simply be faithful. Now, you and I will never know the impact that this man's ministry and his life and his faithfulness has had in the church, in the um, in the community, in the state of Oregon and across the country. But he simply did what he was called to do, and he did it wholeheartedly, unreservedly and with all that he had. And the result was a man who was, well, embarrassed to be singled out as someone to be honored and to um, to celebrate. It was not in his um, in his character to have the focus of attention be on him. And yet it was the right thing to do to recall the ministry that he has faithfully served in and to encourage the rest of us to be good stewards over the time and the calling that we have on our lives. We are stewards over This portion of time in this place that God has placed us to bear fruit, to contribute to the ongoing work of the kingdom of God. And I was so challenged, encouraged and inspired by his life and his testimony that hasn't ended. It continues uh, that I wanted to mention it here today. 
Pastor Frank Carpenter. He's been involved in the church. He's been involved in civic community. He's been involved in politics. He's helped to provide Bible studies for um, lawmakers and their staff. He's invested in seniors in the latter years of their lives. And uh, he is continuing to do the work of the ministry as he has been called. Again, in ministry since 1980 and not yet done. And I wonder where you stand in your life at this moment. Maybe you're just 25. Maybe you're starting out. Maybe you're in the middle of it and you feel like I've only done this one thing my whole life. The question is, are you faithful with what God has called you to do today? Will you be faithful tomorrow? Whether or not there are accolades or attention. I mentioned uh, at the event that, you know, Pastor Frank will never be on the cover of the Oregonian because they don't tend to honor people uh, who do this kind of work. And I was quickly reminded that, yes, he did don the cover of the Oregonian. <laughs> Most of us won't. But faithfulness is worthy of being acknowledged and celebrated. And I just wanted to mention that Pastor Frank Carpenter set the bar very high for the rest of us to be faithful and to hear those words one day. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Sounds good when I say it, but when he says it, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the Father says it. That'll mean something. We're out of time. I do want to thank um, James Blend for producing today's program, Dave King for engineering, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. And be sure to get your tickets for the upcoming Night of Worship this Saturday, 2 and 6 p.m., with a dinner in the middle. Good night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.